This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We are living through something that we've never had before, the second impeachment of one American president, Donald Trump. That he will not be convicted by the United States Senate has been pretty much a foregone conclusion, leading some to wonder why bother, though the videos presented this past week have made others wonder how you could do anything else. Major Garrett, like myself, will be able to improbably tell our grandchildren we were reporters during three of America's four presidential impeachments, the both of us having missed Andrew Johnson by just that much. Major Garrett is the CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent and has two podcasts of his own, which you should check out. One's The Debrief and the other is The Takeout. Major, what's interesting is that most Republicans are not even dealing with the charges against the former president, saying they don't have to because the whole procedure is unconstitutional, even though that's a stance there's no legal support for. There's some legal support, but it's very narrow. And Gil, to your point, it is a place of standing athwart the actual facts, because Republicans find the actual facts, as vividly displayed this week, too uncomfortable, too unsettling, too politically toxic. So to avoid that, they step away from them and say, you know, you can't have a trial of a former president. That's their reading of the Constitution. If you were to take constitutional scholars and sort of apportion them, I would say 90 to 94 percent disagree with Republicans, but a small percentage agree with them. That's just enough for Republicans to say this process is unconstitutional. And because it's unconstitutional, I don't have to comment or even deliberate on the merits. And the merits are, is it constitutional for a president to tell a big lie before an election and after election that the only way he could lose is if it was stolen or fraudulent and then propound that lie over and over to pressure his Justice Department to find a result that didn't exist in the facts? to pressure state election officials to change election results at his behest, and then to tell his followers that the only remedy was to try to do something to protest Congress counting certified electoral ballots. Are any of those things consistent, the question before the United States Senate is, with upholding the Constitution and your oath of office? Republicans don't want to have to answer that question. It's too difficult. 
So they say, you know what? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to say it's unconstitutional and leave it at that. Since we've all known pretty much how this is going to come out in the end, a lot of this is probably aimed at convincing the American people just how dangerous this was. And that may be working since the January 6th insurrection. We've seen an unusually high number of Republicans change their registration to mostly independent, some Democratic. That is a very dangerous note for the GOP in terms of winning elections. But at the same time, it makes it easier for the Trump faction of the party to control their nominations through primaries and caucuses. Both things are true, Gil. You may be seeing the transformation of the Republican Party fully into a party of Trump, but also a distinctly and possibly permanently minority party, at least in terms of winning national elections. One of the things that will happen as a result of this trial is because this record will be established, Democrats will try to say the following. Donald Trump was not necessarily a populist, though he had populist tendencies. He wasn't just an outsider. He wasn't just someone disrupting the political system on behalf of people who felt that that was a good thing. No, no, Donald Trump was something more. He may have been all those things, but what he really was, was someone with authoritarian hungers. And if that becomes, even just generally speaking, what people think of when they think of the Republican Party influenced by Donald Trump, that is not a long-term proposition healthy for Donald Trump or whatever the Republican Party is under his watchful gaze. And so Democrats are using this trial to say, all right, maybe you don't convict him, but at least there's a public record established and people who are not in a position to cast that vote in a Senate trial have lots of opportunities to cast votes in other elections. And we'd like them to remember psychologically what they can now fairly associate with the Republican Party influenced by Donald Trump. The RNC chairwoman, the Republican National Committee chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, when told of conservatives planning a breakaway center-right political party, says you can't do that because the GOP can only win if we all hang together in 2022 during the midterm elections. How do you get party members to hang together when you had people from the president's faction actually wanting, and that's been demonstrated in the videos again this week, to hang Trump's own vice president, Mike Pence, for obeying the Constitution. It's, it's a tough sell. Yes, it is, Gil. And you and I are old enough to remember the frictions within the Republican Party during the Cold War. How aggressive are you with the Soviets? Or what do you do about tax policy? What's more important, lowering tax rates or the deficit? Those are policy discussions that cause real friction within the Republican Party. That's a completely different kind of conversation than, hmm, do we uphold the Constitution or not? Do we seek to hold power even if it physically jeopardizes our own running mate and vice president? I mean, that's not a conversation. And if the Republican Party becomes identified, not with a set of ideas and a set of principles, but one person and one person only, it will see itself, if not disappear, atrophy. But you wonder how long that can go. I mean, the trouble with becoming an all-Trump party, as popular as he has made the party among many people, is that it puts all your eggs in the basket of a man who, come 2024, will be 78 years old, and the people professing to be like him do not, at least so far, seem to have his, his very unique and powerful charisma. That's correct. The uh, charisma of Donald Trump appears to be singular. The relationship he has with his supporters appears to be singular. And there is no real sense that Josh Hawley, the Republican senator from Missouri, Ted Cruz, Republican senator from Texas, can be the next or second Trump in waiting. There is no sense among Trump supporters that they want to move off of Trump. Okay, if they don't want to move off Trump, then the Republican Party has to ask itself, well, nationally, 
in terms of presidential politics, how successful was Trump? He won 2016 narrowly, lost the popular vote by 3 million, and then he lost the popular vote by 7 million in 2020 and lost the electoral college vote somewhat substantially, the same margin that he called a landslide in 2016. So what's the long-term proposition for Donald Trump? Donald Trump was, in the main, never a popular president, never above 50%, usually in the low to mid-40s and said, you know what? That's all I care about. I'll keep my base happy and leave everything else on the margins. Well, having left many things on the margins and demographic shifts in our country being what they are, and they're not going to be reversed, they're only going to continue. The Republican Party, if it stays with Trump, leaves it out of a conversation, not only about the demographic directions of our country and the political inclinations of those within those demographic groups, but what do you do when Trump ages out of this political game? And if you've wedded yourself entirely to one person, one charismatic actor, what's left? And I think Republicans need to have a very serious conversation about what our party is, what's left of it. What are we about? What are we for? And one thing that's difficult right now, Republicans would like to make a set of cogent arguments against President Biden's $2 trillion American rescue plan. They're not able to get those arguments out because they're still dealing with the refuse of the Trump presidency. And until they get beyond that, until they can have this conversation about policy, whatever it is, they're still going to be the party of Trump. And that's just, it seems to me, a very awkward place to be. Final thing, uh, the defense that first day in the impeachment trial from lawyer Bruce Castor, we don't have to go into the details because it's been much talked about, much derided, even almost especially by Trump supporters, uh, the kinds of statements he was making about uh well, Trump could be prosecuted for the kind of stuff he did by the Justice Department and other statements that were just kind of, you know, jaw-dropping, including saying that he had to change his his uh, whole pitch because the House Democrats' presentation was so good. One of Trump's problems, and I've heard this said by close friends and supporters of his, is he too often puts loyalty over competency, thinking that will get him the results he wants. And often it's just the opposite. And in that way, it it seemed to almost be a a mini lesson in some of the things that might have undone uh, the Trump presidency, even for the people who shared his goals. Bruce Castor said four times, not once, but four times, Joe Biden won fair and square. Mm. And then wanders all over because he doesn't really know what his case is. Okay, you can make a case that the president has a First Amendment right to say what he wants. They're going to lean on that. And that he wasn't there to commit the violence. Others were. They should be held accountable. But I mean, what else do you have? And That's the central question, not just for the legal team, but for the future of Donald Trump's politics. What else is there? What is your actual answer to what happened on January 6th? Were you really irrelevant to it? You had nothing to do with that at all? And one thing I would leave the listeners with, Gil, remember on that day, Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, came on CBS, he went on Fox, I think he went on another network, pleading with President Trump, pleading in that hour of need, only you can stop this. Those are not my words. Those are Kevin McCarthy's words. Major, thank you as always. Major Garrett is the CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent and has a podcast of his own, which you should check out, called The Debrief, and another one called The Takeout. And, of course, a book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride. Uh, Major, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Gil. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And we've talked a good deal on this broadcast about COVID, not only because it's a major story that's touched every one of our lives, but because it's the very thing that led to the creation of this program a year ago. One of the things that we have taken as a mission from the beginning is to provide you with accurate, up-to-date information about what's going on. And this week, it means, again, doing a deep dive into the new variants of this virus and what it means for vaccines and treatment. And joining us once again, we turn to Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, the CEO of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization that advocates for that industry. She is a medical doctor and a molecular immunologist. And it's good to talk to you again. Though it's, you know, disappointing that a year into this story, it is still of such major consequence to our lives. Yes, we all hope for that day one time, one day soon, Gil, where it will fade from public awareness and attention, that's for sure. So let's start with the variants of this virus, one of which, which we first found in Great Britain, is expected to be the dominant form of the virus by the end of next month. It's said to be 45% more contagious, which means more disease, more death. How important is this? of course, means more disease, more death, Uh, maybe ameliorated by the vaccines, though. How important is this, though? It's extremely important. What it's saying is that we are in a race against time, and we have to double down our efforts to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible. This is the only thing that is going to protect us. You're right to indicate that at this point, it looks like our two leading vaccine candidates, Moderna and Pfizer, that have been out in, in the population for a month or so now, do seem to have some effectiveness against this new South African variant, variant in addition to the one from the UK. But that is, those studies are still ongoing, and we haven't fully unpacked whether or not they are completely equivalent um, when it comes to how they protect, how those vaccines protect us. So it's important that we go as fast as possible to try to get to that herd immunity, try to make sure that we're back on our feet sooner rather than later. Yeah, that vaccine from the UK seems to be getting the most concern. That's the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, because though it may save save lives, it is said to be minimally effective against mild to moderate forms of the disease. Now, that sounds as first as if, well, look, it's better than nothing. But for people especially in danger because of age, weight, immune suppressant conditions and so forth, uh, this is very worrying news. Yes, those were definitely disappointing results this week. And so everyone's paying extra careful attention to what this means. Um, South Africa was likely wise uh, to err on the side of caution and say that they were going to not use um, that vaccine in that setting. But the good news is the vaccines that are widely in distribution here in the U.S., ones from Pfizer and, and Moderna, and the one that we've seen pre just preview information about coming from J&J, do seem to be quite effective. Um, And so we really need to double down on our efforts here at home to vaccinate as many people as possible. Dr. Anthony Fauci has said no matter what people are saying about the, the boosters that, hey, maybe we should wait longer, stretch out the available vaccine, that the booster has to be given between 19 to 42 days of the first shot. And that trying anything else, since we haven't really tested for much of anything else, trying anything else, waiting longer for that booster or not giving the booster would be a risk. That's what the science says, and that's what we have to follow. Uh, We have to make sure that we are adhering to the protocols that were actually tested in the clinical trials. You know, we do those clinical trials for a reason. We test new drugs or new vaccines in tens of thousands of people and use the data from those studies to have confidence in whether or not they work. And so adhering to the protocols that were actually tested, which is the advice that Dr. Fauci is giving, makes complete sense. So Albert Bourla, who's the CEO of Pfizer, says... There's a high possibility that not only is COVID here to stay, 
that this is just a very hardy virus that isn't going anywhere, but this could end up, and we don't know this yet, but I want to hear what you've learned about this, if anything, that this could end up like the flu, where we just need to be vaccinated possibly every year. That is looking more and more likely by the day. But let's unpack that for a minute. Looking like the flu is not the worst of all possible outcomes. You know, the flu has had some serious strains that have come through and really decimated, but we've gotten it down to a science to be able to produce annual flu vaccines that do a reasonable job of assuring most Americans that they'll make it through flu season with perhaps some inconvenience, but without serious um, illness. Now, of course, people do become seriously ill from the flu each and every year. And so it's important for us to keep up our vigilance um, and to do everything we can to prevent it. But our vaccine strategy has been largely a success. So if we get to that point with COVID, that would be wonderful from the vantage point we are, we are sitting at today. That would be a huge advancement from where we are now. If we're able to annually you know, predict the new strains that are coming out, vaccinate against those strains, and equip most of the population to fight them off in a hardy manner. That's the goal, even if the virus continues to be in our environment. Yeah, and to stick with it, the good news, one piece of good news is that apparently we're close to a lifelized version, essentially freeze-dried version of the mRNA vaccines, which means it would be a powder you can reconstitute. In terms of distribution and storage, that would be a huge step forward. A game changer, a game changer. You know, one of the reasons this entire vaccine effort has been so challenging and so haphazard is that logistically, the two vaccines that we have, the two tools that are so incredibly effective, are a little bit complicated to use. You know, they have to be kept at super cold temperatures. The thawing is complex. Um, they can only be given in, in, in certain settings and at certain times. Um, and they have to be given in this two-dose regimen. So all of this complicates our normal efforts to have a, a vaccine strategy to try to get every American vaccinated. Um, and it's important to, to do everything we can to relieve some of those logistical hurdles because they are substantial. Yeah, and we're still having a distribution problem. I mean, it's been left up to the states as to who to vaccinate when, but that's led to some bizarre situations. For instance, in New Mexico, which is, has a you know, very strict thing for who's getting it right now, which is you know medical workers and people over 75. But people between 65 and 74 and others are going over to the next state in Texas, where apparently it's much easier to get the vaccination I'll just give it to whoever shows up until they run out for that day. And so we've got situations like that where people are, you know, driving five, six miles each way, and they'll have to do that for the second shot as well. And and people are just like not sure, you know, when am I going to get it? And when is it going to be available? And that's still a problem. And this lack of certainty is maddening. You know, we, we pride ourselves on our individuality in this country, and that is definitely a great strength. But when it comes to public health, it's meant that we have a patchwork system to public health. And what you are witnessing today firsthand is the impact of that patchwork system. It means that your health is really determined by your zip code. Um, the ease at which you can access health care and health care tools is determined on um, where you live. And that is not the way it should be. We need to, particularly in the context of a communicable disease where if one person is sick, we are all at risk, we need to be able to distribute things in a much more homogenous manner, a, a much more reliable manner that makes it easy on people. I was in a conversation the other day when someone said, you know, complexity in the healthcare system is a regressive tax. It is a tax on the poor. It's a tax on 
families that are working two or three jobs. It's a tax on, on parents that have small children that don't have the extra luxury of time to track down rare and complicated to receive vaccine doses. We need to make this simple. And the faster we can get to a simple distribution that is uniform across the country, the better off we'll be. You also mentioned, uh, you know, that we're only really as good at doing this as as many people, you know, get the virus, the vaccines and figure out how to get them. One thing we need to talk about, even though it doesn't answer the question of Americans who still can't get the vaccine, is this needs to be worldwide. If we just vaccinate, you know, the United States and the world's richest countries, then every other place is a breeding ground. And we're only as safe as the next person to walk off a plane or the vacation location that people go to and who's eating at the table next to us when we go. I mean, this is this is a massive effort. You're absolutely right. You know, we've been partnering with with some of the global efforts to get vaccines out to countries around the world. And that is absolutely necessary. It was so reassuring to see that the Biden administration you know, reestablished our links to the World Health Organization, rejoined efforts to make sure that we get COVID vaccines to countries around the world, because this is incredibly important. We have to make sure that the world is protected against this scourge so that we won't be facing this the same time next year. I want to make sure that my nine-year-old is back in full-time school this fall and not refighting this battle against COVID over and over again. So fingers crossed, um, we're moving in the right direction. And I, I think it bodes well that we're partnering with scientists and governments around the world to try to get vaccines to as many people as possible. Well, we'll stay in touch, of course, and see how this goes. The fact that we even have as many vaccines as we have right now after just one year, because, you know, standard is like four years or something to develop a vaccine. And I don't want to dismiss that is just really an amazing feat. Mm-hmm. And we we say standard is four years, but that actually was an incredibly fast um, result. I was just reviewing, Bio has a paper coming out next Monday about the success rates of clinical trials across different um, drug classes. And the average length of a clinical trial is 10 to 12 years. So the fact that we've been able to galvanize, come together and do this incredibly quickly is just a testament to so many people really putting self-interest aside and rolling up their sleeves and partnering to make this a reality. And for this week, we'll leave on that incredibly positive note. Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath is CEO of Bio, the biotechnology innovation organization that advocates for that industry. And she is, yes, a medical doctor and a molecular immunologist. I thank you, as always, for lending your expertise to this broadcast. We'll talk to you again. Thank you so much. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We are a little more than a month after the Capitol insurrection, but we already know there are some long-ranging consequences, and not just for some of the participants, but for the Capitol itself. There is talk about permanently fencing off access to the nation's Capitol. Is that a prudent idea based on security or a permanent blight, not only on Washington, D.C., but on a symbol of democracy. Jane Campbell is president and CEO of the United States Capitol Historical Society, a former Senate chief of staff and the former mayor of Cleveland, Ohio. And Jane, let's get right to it. Acting chief of the Capitol Police, Yogananda Pittman, proposed permanent fencing in a statement that was provided to reporters. But D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser said the city will not accept both extra troops or permanent fencing as a long-term fixture in D.C. What do you think? The Capitol stands as the symbol of American democracy. And a piece of that symbol is the fact that people have access to our Capitol. It's one of the things that makes us unique in the world. Um, And the interesting thing being at the Capitol Historical Society is that we, of course, want the Capitol and the lawmakers and all of the congressional staff and the support staff to be safe. Um, We also want our democracy to be safe. And in order for our democracy to be safe, we need to have access to the Capitol. I think what Americans are struggling with here is that our freedom of movement, something never to be taken for granted, symbolizes our freedom. But after the horrors of 9-11 and the airplane hijackings, we now stand in line and are obtrusively patted down and our belongings gone through so we can safely get from one place to another. Whether there is an immediate terrorist threat that security officials have picked up or not, it's just something we all go through. And some people are wondering why the Capitol should be any different. Well, the fact of the matter is that we, after 9-11, the Capitol, uh, we spent um, nearly half a billion dollars to build the Capitol Visitor Center so that there was a way for people to come into the Capitol with proper security. And, you know, when you come into the Capitol, you have to, you know, have your, go through a metal detector, your bags are checked. Um, And so we're not saying that we shouldn't have those kind of measures. What we're saying is that the fence that is up right now, it's a, I mean, if you've seen it, it's, a seven and a half feet, eight feet tall fence with large barbed wires around it. And it sends a message that the Capitol is a fortress for a privileged few and not the center of our democracy. And the Capitol is the center of our democracy. And every single time we've had a problem, the Congress has debated this and the Congress has come out in favor of allowing access. And I have confidence that this Congress will do the same, that they will have the proper security analysts. And that, you know, fact of the matter is, we got a lot more technology to understand what's going on, and we need to use it. We need to use it in a very robust way to protect our capital, our lawmakers, the staff, and the democracy that we have. 
There are some other possibilities, some things, you know, between a seven and a half foot uh, fence and just leaving the Capitol as vulnerable as it is, uh, because you, you can't put Capitol Police in the position of defending from the stairs. That's just almost an impossible thing to do. But what about things that may be architecturally different, although they can be hidden in the ceilings, like just the storefront gates? That so many stores, you know, roll down those those heavy metal gates and have those over doors and windows that can, at the press of a button, come down. That would have prevented the kind of mass entry. Is something like that maybe something in the middle that could be could be thought about? I think all of those things are options to to look at with a serious security review. And so, you know, as I say, what we want is bold security measures that are temporary that are not permanent, uh, that's not a permanent fence that creates a fortress, that in fact, our capital should be welcoming. The number of school children who come through and learn about their democracy by seeing it in action, it, it is important. And it is important to our lawmakers to be reminded, who are we serving? And looking at the next generation, even I had a great conversation with a former member of Congress in the midst of all this. He said, look, you know, it get to be spring. It's madness. You walk around, there's, you know, kids everywhere trying to move around. But he said, it's good madness because it reminded me every day who I was here to serve and what I was doing. And that's, we, we can't give that up. That's too precious. Jane Campbell is president and CEO of the United States Capitol Historical Society and the former mayor of Cleveland, Ohio. Jane, thank you for giving us some perspective on how the Capitol is viewed, not just in D.C., but in the nation. Thank you. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And if you ever needed an excuse to cuddle up for Valentine's Day, this weekend in most of America is going to be the excuse you need because it will be colder than hell, a phrase that is simultaneously descriptive and, when you think about it, rather nonsensical. Of course, it is cold because it is February, but really, this cold? Jeff Baradelli is a meteorologist and climate specialist for CBS News. And Jeff, before we go anywhere, when we use this phrase polar vortex, which seems to be kind of used for everything right now, what are we actually talking about? Aha, that is a great question. And I'm not sure if you know how good of a question that is. So let me explain. So there are two polar vortexes. One of them is in the stratosphere. That is the meteorological one that us nerds in the climate weather community speak of. The one that affects people on the ground is the tropospheric polar vortex, which basically is a a very large, broad area of low pressure, large spinning counterclockwise vortex, if you will, um, up near the North Pole and in the Arctic regions. And typically the winds spin very quickly around it and it lassos in all of the Arctic air. It's very big and it's present every single winter. The real question is, which winters does it in fact break away from the Arctic and head into the U.S.? It didn't really happen last year, and I don't recall if it happened much the year before, but this year it's happening big time, and there are very good reasons for that. So it's interesting you use the word lasso because it enables us, even though we're in radio, to really imagine something. I saw a weatherman, and it wasn't just like a goofy local TV weatherman thing. It actually helped me get it. 
he pulled out a lasso, put on a cowboy hat, pulled out a lasso, and started spinning it quickly, and said, this was, I think, uh, in northwest Arkansas, and he said, okay, this is the way the polar vortex usually is, and notice when I slow the lasso down, it starts to dip and get wider, and it dips south, and that's basically what's happening. So is he right? Is that basically what's happening? He is a smarter man than I am, because that is a great way to describe it. That's exactly what's happening. The the wind, the lasso, if you will, that, that keeps the cold air in place is becoming unruly. Uh, things are very off kilter in the Arctic. And because of it, the jet stream, which is essentially the lasso, is, uh, you know, becoming very wavy and unstable. And so what would normally be kept in the Arctic and polar regions is being unleashed in various parts of the world. And one of those right now, lucky us, is the U.S., Okay, some of this, without getting too technical here, because then I'll lose myself when I get past, you know, a weatherman with a lasso, uh, is sudden stratospheric warming. And apparently that has something to do with kind of like, you know, breaking this up and, and having this situation come down into the United States. So does any of this have to do with climate change, or is this just one of those things that happens every couple of winters? The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, it's both. It's both. You ask a good question, but it's both of those. So first, the sudden stratospheric warming. That is a natural occurrence. It happens every couple of years. Sometimes it happens every year. Uh, it just depends, but it's natural. However, there are some theories out there that climate change is making them more likely and perhaps more intense. Now, first, let me explain the sudden stratospheric warming is all of a sudden in the Arctic, there is a dramatic warming over the North Pole. This year, it was about a 100 degree jump in a matter of a couple to a few days. When I say above the North Pole, I mean like 50 to 100,000 feet up there. And that just throws everything off kilter in the Arctic. So we know that usually following that, about two or three weeks, we'll start to see crazy weather patterns develop where there's so much warm air in the Arctic, a big mountain of warm air, that it creates a blocking scenario where cold air just can't live there anymore and it gets forced and displaced, if you will. Uh, into the middle latitudes. That's what's happening now. It happened first in Siberia. They had temperatures negative, I think, negative 70, 70 degrees below Fahrenheit uh, in, in Siberia. But then eventually some of those cold air masses, this being one of them, migrate from Siberia here. It's moderated. It's not as cold, but it's very cold. In Canada, it's been 50 below Fahrenheit recently. Um, number two, uh, climate change is warming the Arctic at three times the rate of the rest of the globe. And that is also throwing the Arctic completely off kilter, causing these blocks to be stronger than they otherwise would be. And so it piggybacks on top of the stratospheric warming. The stratospheric warming makes the pattern crazy. And then climate change says, yep, I'm going to jump on board. And I'm going to make it even worse. So that's that's what's happening. The climate change, we think, makes the jet stream more wavy. But I will say that there's a lot of controversy. It's a cutting edge uh, area of research, tons of researchers are, are really digging into this. Some say no, some say yes, but we know as meteorologists and climatologists, you cannot warm the Arctic at three times the pace of the rest of the Earth and not see some type of meaningful impact elsewhere. Uh, we've already seen 43 below in northern Minnesota. Oh, yes, in northern Minnesota, they know how to live with cold temperatures, but how dangerous is that kind of temperature? Well, if you're from northern Minnesota, you've dealt with something like that before, so you're okay because you know how to deal with it. But you're right. If that heads south, and it is a big time as we head into later Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, then yeah, it's a big problem. You can't be outside for more than a few minutes. You don't want your skin to be exposed for more than a, a couple to a few minutes. It's the kind of weather where you know uh, you can throw water up into the air, uh, and you've seen this trick on social media plenty of times, and it, and it freezes instantly uh, into ice crystals. So, uh, yeah, you know, this is the kind of weather we're expecting to surge south. Now, we're going to see temperatures into Dallas, probably below zero by Monday or Tuesday morning, probably Tuesday morning, but maybe Monday morning. 
Uh, wind chills will be maybe as low as negative 20 as far south as Dallas. Further north you go, the worse it gets. So you get into the upper plains, upper Midwest, you're talking wind chills negative 50, negative 60. Um, actual temperatures negative 30, negative 40 in certain places. So yeah, this is uh, about as cold as it gets. Um, it is becoming less uh, prevalent because of climate change. We're seeing less extremes, and those extremes are not as low as they used to be. That's why I say that the pattern across the United States, not just the cold air, but the storminess we're going to see over the next few days, uh, is something that I can't remember seeing in recent history. And a lot of it is ironically due to not only the sudden stratospheric warming, but climate change, destabilizing things in the Arctic and causing things to be just awry and extreme in other parts of the world. We've got some other winter storms just kind of mixed into this as well. Right. So, you know, when you get an Arctic boundary that doesn't plunge all the way south and it gets stuck and it's not really moving south, it's kind of in a stalemate, it, it creates a convergence zone of warm, moist Gulf air with extremely cold Arctic air. And, and wherever that convergence zone lies, uh, is where the storminess is. And so there's going to be a train or a conveyor belt or an assembly line, if you will, of storm after storm after storm. We've seen a couple of them already. We're going to see a lot more as we head into next week that ride along it. Now, wherever that, that conveyor belt is, wherever that convergence zone is, is where we see the ice and snow. And so, you know, I can go through a couple for you. We're going to see a minor event. First of all, you know, uh, earlier uh, today, actually, as we're recording this, uh, a hundred car pileup in, in Texas. Um, because of ice. And this was not a major ice storm. It was just, you know, that it, it, it sometimes the, these minor or even moderate events can cause major problems on the roads. But going forward, there's going to be an even bigger ice storm. And it's going to hit Texas, Oklahoma. Uh, all We could see ice all the way down to Houston on Monday. And it could be some pretty significant ice, freezing rain and sleet. That'll move into Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, maybe northern Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, as we head into Monday and Tuesday. And it could deliver as much as an ice, uh, uh, excuse me, an inch of ice on the roads and on the power lines. That means not only the possibility of traffic snarls and accidents, but uh, also power outages possible. North of that, Oklahoma into Arkansas and north, you know, into the northern Tennessee Valley and, and Ohio Valley, that will be snow. You know, in places like Oklahoma City or, or maybe as far south as the border with Texas and into Arkansas, too, there could be more than six inches of snow in some places, maybe a foot. So there, there could be some record breaking snows. And in addition we're going to challenge about 400 record cold temperatures, maximizing into Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, throughout the Plain States, you know, uh, down into Texas and into parts of the South. Uh, that's 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 just that's just part of it. There's one more thing I should mention. Seattle hasn't seen a snowfall over seven or eight inches since 1985. It's possible could end up being a 10 inch snow. Uh, you know, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. But if it if it does, you know, breach 10 inches. It will be a top uh, three or top five snowstorm uh, for them. And, and so you might think it snows a lot in Seattle, but it doesn't snow a lot in Seattle. It snows often a little, but not huge snowstorms. Jeff Baradelli is meteorologist and climate specialist for CBS News. Jeff, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It is tax season with some pandemic differences. On CBS This Morning, anchors Tony DeCopel and Gail King have questions for CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. 160 million Americans or thereabouts got a stimulus payment last year. Is that taxable? That is not taxable. So good news, right? So if you got $1,200 or $500 per kid, maybe you were one of the few people who got that extra $600 at the end of December. That's not taxable. But here's what's really important. A lot of people said they were missing their stimulus payments or they got less than they thought. Maybe they had a child and the IRS didn't know that. If that's the case for you, you are going to file your taxes and you are going to focus on it. Ready for this line 30 of your form, because that's the recovery rebate credit. If you think you are due money, focus on that. Make sure you fill that out and be sure that you get the money you're due. All right. Very good to know. Stimulus payments not taxable. What about the 22 million Americans who were unemployed at some point last year and they got unemployment money? Is that taxable? That is taxable. Unemployment benefits, whether it came through the CARES Act, whether it came through your state of residence, totally taxable. Now, some people had withholding. That's good. But on the federal level, unemployment benefits are taxable. Here's something else to remember. There are actually 15 states that do not levy tax on unemployment benefits. Check to see if you're on this list, because then you might be able to avoid it. But unfortunately, unemployment, it's seen as income, tax is income. I guess the only good news is you didn't get taxed like in the FICA sense. You didn't pay into Social Security on these dollars. Okay. Now, if you were lucky enough to keep a job, many, many, many millions of Americans have been doing that job from home since basically March of last year. Does that mean they can write off the portion of their home they're using as an office? This is probably the most frequently asked question that I got last summer when people were filing their taxes for on, on an extension. Here's the deal. In 2017, we had a new tax law, and it basically said no office deduction for anyone who's an employee. If you're a W-2 wage earner, you can deduct a portion of your residence or your rent uh, if you are self-employed. You've got to use one room or a part of your house on a regular basis, and you can't have another office somewhere else. So the rules are pretty tight. Again, if you are a W-2 wage earner, sorry, you paid for that stand-up desk and the new chair all on your own. <laughs> Jill, the IRS is warning about some kind of unemployment uh, tax scam. I got a fishy call the other day, and as I was giving my zip code, I go, I wonder if I'm being scammed at this particular moment. What is what what is the scam you're talking about? This is an awful scam. It's basically fraudsters stealing your your social security number and filing unemployment benefits on your behalf, mm. collecting those benefits. You won't know this happened unless you get a form 1099G from the government. Mm. Now, here's the thing. This happened to my sister. She gets notified, says, hey, here's your form for the unemployment benefits that you collected. She goes, I was employed all of last year. What happened? You've got to notify the state. You've got to get a revision. You probably should also get an, a tax ID protection from the IRS when you file an IP protective code, a PIN, because this could mean your social's out there anyway, and you'd want to prevent against fraud with your federal returns. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross.
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st.